turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. One of the greatest mysteries or conundrums of the Christian life is probably the concept of having joy in the midst of difficulties. Consider it all joy, James says, when you encounter various trials, not just certain trials where you get some sort of reward at the end, but various trials, every trial, all kinds of trials. Trials that end up with not getting better. Trials that end up with death. Trials that end up with not recovering that money or not getting that job back. Consider it all joy. And James is not alone in the Scriptures in talking about this theme. In fact, this is a theme that Peter addresses with the specific goal of helping his readers in ancient Asia maintain a godly perspective, not in trials in general, But what he is particularly addressing is persecution. Persecution. And in our passage, we are looking at how we, as Christians, as followers of Christ, can and should suffer or accept persecution with joy. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19? This is our passage for the morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Let me read that for you. I'll be reading from the NAS. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We started this section a couple weeks ago, the last time we were in 1 Peter, by looking at the first two of our outline, which is seven components of persecution to remember in order to maintain your joy. In other words, seven aspects of persecution, not of joy, not of the end of persecution, but seven aspects of persecution itself that we would do well to remember so that we can have the right perspective, which is joy. And last time, we looked at the expectation, which is the first component of joyful persecution, the expectation, which we saw in verse 12. And by way of review, I'm going to go over the first two that we've already covered. 
because of the nature of our allegiance to Jesus Christ, whom the world rejects and rejected, believers are prone to face persecution. With everything you know about the world and the world system, compared and contrasted with everything you know about how we as Christians are to live in that world, it should come to you as no surprise when you are indeed persecuted or when Christians around the world are persecuted for their faith. At the same time, Peter reminds us with his choice of words, his vocabulary, that persecutions are allowed by God for our refining. They're testing, he says. First, to show whether or not we are truly believers, or, but also for those who pass that test, those who are true Christians, to be refined through those difficulties. And the word that he uses is that of, that reminds us of a refiner's furnace, a metallurgist's furnace. And so what those persecutions do, and we know this is true uh, not from this passage, but from other passages, it is true of all trials. It is like an alloy, a mixed metal that is put in the fiery furnace. It is tested, it is melted, and it is refined so when it comes out, it is pure gold. All the dross, all the bad metals, the, uh, the worthless metal is taken out. And that is why God allows trials and specifically persecutions in our lives so that we will become better Christians, that we would glorify Him, that we would praise Him. It's the same concept when you break down in painful workouts your muscles. It is the same reason that no one during uh, spring training or whatever it may be, whatever sport it is, none of those athletes are smiling. They're in pain. It's hard. They would rather be at home. They would rather be watching TV. They would rather be eating McDonald's than protein shakes and whatever they have to eat. But they understand it is refining them to be the kind of athlete they want to be, whether it's the top dog in college or go into the NFL or whatever it is. They understand that the difficulties, the pain, make them better. And it's the same concept with trials and persecution in the Christian's life. Approach them with the right perspective and you will be refined. You will become the kind of man or woman you desire to be in Christ. Moving on to verse 13, we looked at our second component of persecution to remember in order to maintain your joy, and that is the exaltation. The exaltation. Peter sets up a correlation, an equation of sorts in verse 13, and he says, to the degree to the amount, to the level that you suffer as Christ did, and that is not that you are crucified, but that you are suffering for the same reason, that is for doing what is right, proclaiming what is righteous. So to the degree that you suffer as Christ did, you should also rejoice. There's a correlation there. Rejoice in knowing that we are being refined through this process that God deems us worthy for persecution, that we might become more like Him. But also rejoice in the knowledge of the glory we will share with Christ when He returns at the second coming. There is a reward on this life, in this life, for persecution, and that is the joy of obedience, that is the growth in your spiritual life. But that pales in comparison, as wonderful as that is, it pales in comparison to the glory we will share, as the New Testament promises, that we will share with the glorified Savior at His return. 
And this is what we long for. This is what we look forward to. And that's why Paul, or Peter rather, can say we exult, we rejoice exceedingly, abundantly, with rapture. Now we come to our third component of persecution for us to maintain our joy. This is new for this morning, is the encouragement. The encouragement. Let me read for you again verse 14 where we get this point. Peter writes, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Again, Peter starts by refocusing our attention on what the issue at hand really is. And the issue at hand is not trials. It is not just persecution, but persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ. And he calls this being reviled for the name of Christ. That word revile is probably not something we use in modern English here in America, but it means to insult, but insult heavily. It means to denounce it. It means to pile on the insults. In the New Testament, when you see this Greek word that's translated revile, you will notice that it became associated with the mistreatment of Christians. And so almost every time you see that word, that Greek word in the New Testament, it is referring to Christians being abused in some way. And when we talk about this being a specific kind of difficulty, you need to understand that the specific kind of persecution that Peter is talking about in which we can have joy is morally undeserved. It's very important to understand that, that adjective, morally undeserved. I guess that would be an adverb, huh? Morally undeserved. Now, the person persecuting you may say, oh, you deserve it because you're a Christian. You deserve it uh, because you don't believe in love or you hate women's bodies or whatever it may be, whatever, how they define our view of certain now political issues. But in the eyes of God and the eyes of true morality, you don't deserve it. You have done nothing wrong. When you are persecuted for the name of Christ, you are being persecuted for, not, for doing nothing wrong. And we will see in verse 15 in our next point, that Peter warns us against being persecuted for actually doing something wrong. But the persecution that we're talking about here is, is for the name of Christ. We're talking about doing things for Jesus, because of Jesus, because we're followers of Him. And this opposition, if I can call persecution that, is purely because of Jesus Christ. And when you talk about doing anything in His name or receiving anything in His name. Here it says being reviled for the name of Christ. We're not just referring to the fact that we follow this guy whose name has, happens to be Christ. It's not just because of His title, His moniker, what the, uh, what, what the name may represent for that person. Right? Your name uh, represents who you are. I, I think in our culture, it's not as common to have a name with, with, with clear significance, right? Just like, oh, we named you after, we like this name from this movie we saw. Or, you know, there's no like, oh, your great-great-grandfather was this. And, then, and so, you know, usually it's just a name that your parents liked. But at the same time, 
now that you are grown up, when I refer to Jenny or I refer to Liz, they understand who I'm talking about in relation to everything that that person is. And that's the idea when we are reviled for the name of Christ. Let's see, what offends is not just the name. It's not just letters on a page. What offends is who he is and what he taught, what he represents, the gospel message, which we call good news. But for those who want to be their own God, for those who want no accountability for their sin, for those who joke and perhaps truly believe that hell is a place where they get to party forever with their friends, they don't want the gospel. In fact, it's bad news. In fact, it's a source of persecution. And those are what result in hostility toward his followers. Look, you're saying you're, you're, you're patiently enduring persecution, but the persecution is because you committed a crime. I'm saying, I, I don't care about that. There's nothing noble about that. God's not going to bless you because of that. You deserve the persecution because you committed a crime. He's saying, suffer for Christ. He's saying, this is the kind of difficulty I'm talking about. And Peter gives us a list. It's a pretty extreme list of what we should not have to be suffering for. This is not an exhaustive list. He's making a point of don't suffer for criminal activity. And I think it goes without saying that he's not saying that it's okay to do these things as long as you're not persecuted for them. He's not saying commit crimes as long as you're not caught. He's saying don't do these things at all. Because in general, these vices, all of which will result in some sort of animosity against the perpetrator, are to be avoided completely in the Christian's life. Let's look at the list. Don't murder. I know this is a hard one for you guys. No, I'm just kidding, right? Don't be persecuted. Don't suffer for being a murderer. In the Greek, a murderer is, well, a murderer, okay? Let's move on. Very self-explanatory. None of you are murderers. If you are, please speak to me after the service. Actually, no, call me from a distance, and we can talk about that. <laughs> Second is don't be a thief, right? Don't, don't suffer because you're, you're stealing things. So in the ancient world, both murder, and this will be surprising, and a theft were considered capital crimes. In other words, for murder as well as theft, a possible legal punishment was the death penalty. And I know there are countries today in where theft uh, could, could get the death penalty. So he moves from these specific crimes to the general, and he just says evildoer. And this covers any other type of crime without exception. And it's actually, if you have the NIV, it's translated as such. It says, or any other kind of criminal. So he's like, I'm not, look, I list the two big ones. I'm not going to list them all. Just any crime. Don't commit any crime. Don't suffer for being any sort of criminal. Then he moves on to this fourth one, which is kind of interesting. It's a very unique word, even in the Greek, to this passage. He says, don't suffer as a troublesome meddler. They say, what in the world is that? Simple. He's saying, don't be a busybody. Don't be a busybody. What's that? It's someone who sticks their nose into other people's business. And when you break down the Greek word, which is a compound word, it literally means someone who meddles in things that are foreign to his calling. 
but it also means an agitator, a troublemaker. Uh, this was historically would have talked about someone who looks after the affairs of another, but the description uh, troublesome meddler tells us that this is not a good thing. And in this list, Peter is showing us that it's not just legal crimes, but all sins in general. And yes, meddling, being a troublesome meddler, is a sin. Say what? Say what? 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 and 11. We urge you, brethren, to excel still more. We talk about that all the time, right? Excel still more. Be excellent. Excel still more. But look at what he connects to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you. 2 Thessalonians 3, 11 and 12. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life. How does he define undisciplined life? Doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Now, I will tell you from my limited experience, but this passage makes it clear, it is generally those who have more free time, who have nothing else to do, than to entertain themselves or whatever they're doing by meddling in other people's affairs. And you see this. I mean, just think back of the, of the time that you or a friend, uh, they lost their job and so they didn't work for a couple months. They just start meddling. They start becoming busybodies, right? And in fact, free time is, is dangerous for all kinds of sins. We need to stay busy and honor the Lord with our productivity and our working in a way that honors Him. But there's a connection to living an undisciplined life, being lazy, and then being a busybody. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't obey the commands to love one another, to pray for one another. In order to love and to pray, you need to know what's going on in people's lives. This doesn't mean we disobey the, uh, the commands to confront sin, to evangelize, to encourage other people in their difficulties and their life situation. But I think when I say the word busybody... You all know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't think any of you think you're a busybody because you're praying for people or you're sharing the gospel. It's It's the feeling the need to always correct other people. And if you can't, correct other people, you kind of you dig in and find something to correct. You're a busybody. You, you pick on every little thing, and if you, there's nothing to pick on, you find something in their lives to pick on. And I would say if you're trying to beware of being a busybody, a troublesome meddler, and I'm just talking more about this one because, again, I don't think there's a lot of criminals here, especially thieves and murderers, um, but we have a tendency to be busybodies. We tend to meddle in other people's business. They don't want us to meddle. And so I would say you need to beware of curiosity. Stick with me here. I have three young boys. Curiosity is a good thing. Let me explain. Hey, why weren't you there? What were you doing? How come this person said this? If you just want to know, great, you just want to know. Curiosity in general is something I encourage. Because curiosity is what's going to drive you to greater pursuit of knowledge, especially of the Scriptures. 
Why did God do this? Why was Noah this? Why is this person called honorable? Why is this person in the Scriptures? Why is this person in Hebrews 11? It's going to drive that kind of curiosity, drives you to greater understanding, right? Even in kids, be curious, ask questions, learn, grow, develop mentally. But you need to be cautious when you're only curious about other people's business because you want fuel to judge them. And I have found, and granted, my experience is very limited, that often the most judgmental people also have the greatest curiosity of this type because they have to feed their egos, which is what being judgmental is. Now, it may be that they're not curious because they want to judge, but because they tend to sin by being judgmental, their curiosity does not help that particular sin. And you can see how if there was this kind of person who is always just meddling, telling you what to do, you know, you're happy being single and they're constantly trying to set you up or whatever it may be, those types of things, you can see how persecution or ostracism would occur not just from unbelievers but even believers. Oh, stay away. Here he comes again. Look at this guy. He's coming. Tell me more about what I'm doing wrong and picking on my life and picking on my wife and picking on my kids and tell me how to raise my kids and all this kind of stuff. Just meddling, meddling. And so Peter is saying, hey, mind your own business because if you're going to suffer and be persecuted, don't let it be because you're simply annoying. And with this list, Peter is saying to the Christian, make sure your sufferings are pure. Beware of persecution as a result of ungodly conduct. If you've been around, you're probably tired of this analogy. It's like like, uh, he's not here this morning, but we have a CHP officer uh, who's becoming a member in our church. And, you know, it's it's like the CHP officer pulls over a guy, right? And And the guy goes, oh, you saw my Christian bumper sticker, and, and so you, you're purposely pulling me over. This is persecution because of my faith. Uh, no, sir, you're driving 95 miles per hour, right? And, and we start using that as an excuse. You're being persecuted because you committed a crime, right? This is not for the sake of Christ. And, and by the way, if you do drive like that, please take the Christian bumper sticker off of your car. Thank you for the rest of us. I'm just joking. Kind of. When we're talking about this, I I see a correlation to evangelism. Okay? We don't want people to be offended because of us. We want people to be offended because of Christ. Christ offends. He told us that. I will offend to the point that people will kill you, to the point that I will destroy, I will tear apart families. That's how offensive I am, Jesus says. But don't let people persecute you or reject the gospel because of your lack of tact, because of your lack of social skills, because of your personality. Not, don't let it be because of your crimes, your meddling, your annoyance, your neglect of personal hygiene, whatever it may be. Right? So often, people can't hear the gospel because they can't get past us. We don't share the gospel. We pick fights. And then to justify our anger, we say, well, this is why I voted this way. And then we share the gospel. They're already done. They're gone. 
They don't want to listen to you anymore. They're finished when you brought up Hillary, when you brought up Trump. Because you're trying to make a political argument, you're getting mad about some political, albeit moral issue, and then you justify it with the gospel. That's not evangelism. That's picking fights, right? Evangelism is giving people what they need to have an eternity with God. And believe it or not, changing their view on abortion or homosexuality or whatever it may be is not going to get them to heaven. It just changes their political view. Maybe it'll change their day if you're standing outside of a, an abortion clinic. Change their lives, but not their eternity. Share the gospel. Don't get in the way. And it's the same thing with persecution, right? We are so offensive ourselves with our views and our personality that these people don't, we can't even get to the gospel. And so they can't be informed enough to either respond in faith or persecution, So that's the exclusion of persecution. Yes, be persecuted if the Lord brings it. Yes, persecution is good. It is a blessing and it results in joy. No, it is not okay to be persecuted for just anything. Component number five, exaltation. Exaltation, not exaltation, which means rejoicing. It was our second point. Exaltation, which means to glorify. 1 Peter 4.16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. So Peter hits the same concept of the right kind of persecution from another angle, but this time with a touch of fitting irony in the term Christian. Why is that ironic? See, the word Christian or the title Christian is not a word that is found too often in the New Testament. I believe it's three times. The first time the disciples were called Christians was in Acts 11.26. Now, by A.D. 64, historians tell us that the name was in common usage in Rome. But here's the thing. The name Christian was coined by persecutors. It was coined by the Gentiles. It was a, a term of mockery. It was a term of abuse. It was a name to make fun of followers of Christ and was associated with hatred and persecution. Now, over time, the name was used by Christians themselves. Before that, and and you see this in the New Testament, uh, Christians referred to themselves or each other as disciples, believers, holy ones, other names that we see in the epistles. So why the name Christian? Well, like many derogatory names, the the actual name was based on a distinct quality of that person that they were trying to make fun of. I wear contacts. I'm going to give you an example. My my wife joked I should wear my glasses today. Four Eyes. You've heard that name? I think I was called that when I first got my glasses. That's just to make fun of the fact that you have four eyes, I guess, right? Two biological eyes and two plastic eyes, right? Uh, I'll use this because I can make fun of myself, slant eye. I don't think we use this today, but that was to make fun of Asians because biologically in our DNA, our eyes are less wide than, say, a Caucasian, right? Or uh, even the, the name redneck. They think it means something else, but originally it was to make fun of blue-collar workers who worked in the field, and so they always had necks 
They always had a, a sunburn on the back of their necks. And so they were, you know, the educated and more wealthy would make fun of these people who had to work in the fields, and that was a distinctive quality. And so here comes this name Christian because the point of mockery for the world was the fact that believers had Christ at the center of their lives. And with that in mind, it's actually not derogatory at all. Hence, its adoption by the very people the term was meant to insult, the Christians. Taking into account its origins, this simple title really summarizes everything that Peter is conveying to us in this passage. It is not bad to be persecuted for the name of Christ. It is a blessing. It is a joy. It is a means to honor Him even when the world mocks us for that very thing. That's what the rest of the verse says. We are not to be ashamed. Persecution for sin, yes, be ashamed. Persecution for Christ, rejoice. Rejoice. It's like being... You know, you know, being ashamed when people find out about your, uh, your faith or even persecute you because of your faith, it's like being all ashamed and going home, being really upset, trying not to think of vengeance when someone goes like, hey, uh, I don't mean to be inappropriate, but you are really good looking. Oh, how dare you? Why? Why would they say that? It's not an insult at all. Hey, you know, I don't, I don't want to say this at the meeting, but as, as the manager over 3,000 people, I want you to know that you're our best employee. How dare you? How could you say that to me? Don't you ever say that when my wife's around. That is disgusting. No, you'd be like, wow, thank you. Uh, can we have a meeting about a promotion, right, or something like that? And yet, the most wonderful, glorious person, Jesus Christ, when people find out that we are not only his friend, but that he died for our sins. Uh, oh, oh, so scary. Uh, mm. It's a compliment. And not only a compliment, you just like won the lottery because we've just told that we're going to have joy and blessing and this extra measure of the Spirit's grace and peace and rest. Rather than being ashamed We are to glorify God in this name, to praise God for the privilege of being His child, to praise God for the privilege of suffering, not for us, but for His name's sake. To be right there, right there in the timeline of men and women like Noah, like Peter, like Matthew, Abraham, Isaac, Abel. Why are you ashamed? Why are you ashamed? Are any of these players ashamed when they say, man, you're, you know, LeBron, you're Michael Jordan. You're like Michael Jordan. He's not ashamed of that, to be lined up with one of the greatest, the greatest, right? Oh, man, this guy, remember Joe Montana, guys? Take a back seat. This QB's our newest Joe, Joe Montana of today. He wouldn't be ashamed of that. Why would you be ashamed to be, be in the line of these godly men and women, let alone to suffer for the name of Christ? You're going to suffer. This is the world. People are selfish. People are egotistical. They're going to make fun of you for something. Why not make it the name of Christ? 
Why make it your hair? Why make it your ethnicity? Why make it something else? They're going to say what they're going to say. But could we, why don't we just overshadow all of that? I mean, I think it's fair to say that if you're a Christian here this morning, you would say, yes, I could give you a timeline of my ethnicity. I could tell you what year my parents immigrated to the United States. I could tell you, you know, what percentage of of Taiwanese my kids are and what percentage of Caucasian and all this stuff. But above and beyond all of that, I am a Christian. And I think you would all say the same thing. What defines you? I'm an engineer. No. But before that, you would say, but I'm a Christian because that's the most important thing. I'm a Christian first, even a pastor second. I'm a Christian first, a father second, a husband second. I'm a follower of Christ first. And if someone wants to take a bow and arrow and he wants to nail you with some sort of mockery or persecution, let him make it so that you are so clear that Jesus Christ is the biggest and best and most important thing That even if he's trying to target your ethnicity or your job or where you were born, he's always going to hit Christianity because it overshadows everything else. Because you may not live like it, but by virtue of who he is, Jesus Christ, my God, your God, overshadows everything else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you understanding that you sympathize with our weaknesses, that you, Lord Jesus, suffered in a way that we can't even imagine. Lord, we are tempted to hide. We are tempted to keep quiet. We are tempted to prioritize our our children, our work, our finances, Father, help us to understand from these passages and others that you deserve and you desire so much more than just living out our faith in our home and reading our Bibles and coming to church. You desire us to praise you verbally amongst non-Christian co-workers, to share the gospel, to tell people who we are and to live it out. And Father, may we truly find joy if persecution comes. May we evaluate our lives and see if we are being persecuted above and beyond our faith because of our personalities or our sins or our crimes. And may, may you be the forefront of our lives and what people see in us so that if they're going to be persecuting us, that it is indeed not racism, it is not elitism, it is not classism, it is religious persecution. And when that comes, if that comes, may we respond to it in a way that honors you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.